Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 35. Do not throw away your confidence. Do not throw away your confidence. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by, become, by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you grant us faith, and we know that this faith will endure until the very end, because it is your gift, and you have chosen to grant it to us. Thank you, Lord, for the grace that has been manifested in our life. Now we ask that we will have increase of faith, that we will not regress, we will not turn back, we will not go back to our old ways, but increase day by day. And may you remind us by this passage that we should look and keep ahead of us that eternal, abiding, better possession that we have in heaven with you. Grant us this kind of faith that increases and it looks ahead, putting hope in the world to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that, in fact, is what this passage is all reminding us of. What is, what is the, the basic problem we usually experience? The basic problem we usually experience is we don't know from where we have come, or we forget from where we have come. We forget our origin, whether that's the origin of the universe, the origin of mankind, or even just the origin and the way that we had our upbringing in our families, and even the first time we heard the gospel, or the first time we believed in the gospel. Our problem often is we don't remember from where we came. But also our problem is we don't keep ahead of us, in front of us, where we're going. If we know from where we came and where we're going, it would solve so many of the evils and ills of the world. It would help us to press on to know not only from where God brought us, but where God is taking us. Where God is taking us is superior, more supreme and sublime to anything that we have had in the past or that we are experiencing now. In this passage, the apostle is addressing both of these issues. In verse 32, 32 to 34, he is expressing how we need to remember the past because we know what God did through us in the past. But also we need to keep in front of us the future. Verse 34, 34, the second half of the passage, he tells us, there, we need to keep in, a, in front of us this knowledge of a better possession and an abiding one, an eternal better possession. That is heaven itself. That is for us to have. And then the final thing in verse 35, the exhortation is, don't throw away your confidence because what you have is a great reward. What you possess is a great reward. Let's see how he argues this case. Verse 32, he says, But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings. He's already warned us in the previous passage. He warned us not to turn away from God. 
But here also he's warning us in a, or encouraging us in a different way not to turn away from God by remembering from where we came, the former days. Remember the way you used to live. Remember the things that you used to love to do. Remember the way you used to think. Remember the values you used to have. But now remember that God has changed that. God made a difference in your life. God converted you. God gave you a new heart. He opened your eyes. He gave you new desires. He gave you a desire to love Him and to please Him. Remember those days, those former days. Because He says here, we were enlightened after being enlightened. That means we did not enlighten ourselves. We did not suddenly wake up one day and say, today I'm going to follow God. Today, I, I find myself brilliant and I know what I'm going to do. I know the path I'm going to take and I, this is what I'm going to do. We did not illumine or enlighten ourselves. Here, he says, after being enlightened, God enlightened us. God showed us that there is an eternal heaven. He showed us the means of heaven, that is, by forgiveness of sins, that is, by repentance for forgiveness of sins, that is, to believe in the death and resurrection of Christ. And his perfection, his righteousness would be reckoned to us so that there would be therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He enlightened us with those things. He gave us a hatred for sin, a hatred for our old self, a hatred for the things that we have done in the past, and a desire to please him. This is how he enlightened us, by his grace that he gave to us. So if we reflect on that, who would want to regress? Who would want to go backwards and stumble and go back to the old ways when he already showed us? He already manifested to us what is good and right. We knew it. We were utterly convinced that that was wrong, what we used to do, and now we are on the right path. That is the way, the truth, and the life. That is Jesus Christ. He showed us that. And when he showed us that, just as he did to these believers, he says, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. That conviction we had, just as they had, caused us to be isolated, caused us to be unique, caused us to be separated from other people. We used to mingle with the people who loved to sin, but then we found that we can't do that anymore. We had a distaste for it. It became bitter to us. We didn't want to do the same thing anymore. And in fact, we wanted to be on a new path, the right path, the highway of holiness. That's what we desired. We desired that. And that is what sustained us. We had such a conviction that now we have the truth. We believe the truth that that conviction enabled us to endure a great conflict of sufferings. It would have been on different levels. To them and to us, it would have been first the family, then the circle of friends, then it would be co-workers, it would be schoolmates, it would be all kinds of people that we know. We used to be in their midst. We used to have their favor. We used to be the life of the party whenever we met with them. But now that we don't love the things that they love anymore, they persecuted us, they afflicted us, they slandered us, they said evil things against us. And he says that this is the way we used to be. We used to have that kind of zeal, that kind of enthusiasm for the things of God that we stood up, unshaken, immovable at that time during great conflict of sufferings. This is the way we were. 
Then he describes it further. Verse 33, he said, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. That's the first part. Partly, we ourselves were made a public spectacle. We were laughingstocks. People said all kinds of things about us. They mocked us. They ridiculed us. They would demean us by the way that we began to live. Oh, you think you're, you think you're better than us. You think you know it all. You think you're righteous. You think everybody else is going to hell. You think, you think, that's the way they would mock and ridicule us. They would make a laughingstock out of us through reproaches and tribulations. So they would reproach us. They would slander us. They would say evil things about us. And also they would cause affliction or tribulation in our life. They would restrict us from access to certain things, whatever it may be whether in school or in the, for example, in the school. If we were the life of the party, then, and we were on the sports team, then they would restrict us. They'd say, no, no, we don't want him to be a starter. We want him to sit on the bench, convincing the coach, maybe even the coach. Things like that. They would make tribulations or afflictions come upon us because we used to be like them, but we're not like them anymore. So then they turn against us. So the verse 33, one way in which persecution arose was that it was addressed towards us individually. But also, it happened in verse 33, he says, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. We saw others being mistreated and we were still willing to be their friends. Others were being mistreated, and we still said, we'll help you, we'll pray for you, we'll do whatever it takes, we'll encourage you, you can still be my friend. We went with them, and then when we went with them, those who were persecuted, we identified with them against all the rest. This is how he's describing it. We were not only persecuted ourselves, but we were helping others who were persecuted. We had that kind of courage that we were willing to help the persecuted. We shared in their suffering. And how so? Verse 34, how did we share in their suffering? Verse 34 says, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners. You showed sympathy to the prisoners, which would be sharing sufferings with those who were so treated. If somebody is thrown into prison, which happened in the Bible, Joseph in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 39, was unjustly thrown into prison. Paul the Apostle in Acts chapters 21 to 28, he was unjustly thrown into prison. When Christians are unjustly, for no sin, no crime of their own, when, when they are thrown into prison, then the Christians themselves are suffering unjustly. But then, what will the other Christians who are not thrown into prison do? Will they say, oh, I don't know that man. Who is that man? I don't know him. I've never known him. Will we say that? Or will we go visit him in prison? And if we do visit him in prison, others will find out that we visited the innocent man, the innocent Christian in prison, and then they'll mock and ridicule us. See, here, that's what he means. You showed sympathy 
to the prisoners. You visited them, you gave them things, whatever was permitted to be given to them as a prisoner, you gave those things, you identified with them, so you were willing to have your own name smeared for the sake of helping a fellow believer who was unjustly imprisoned. That was one way. But then the other way was you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Then they got the persecutors, got the authorities or whoever, the robbers, the thugs, the criminals in the neighborhood to rise up against you and to seize your property, he says. You, this happened to you yourself. They stole your property. They plundered and looted your own property. And yet, you didn't take it too hard. Of course, it's going to be hard when it first happens. It's, you're going to have grief. You're going to have sorrow. There's danger. You, there's loss of money. There's loss of property when that first happens. So there's no doubt that it's an evil and we grieve because of it. But how are we going to overcome that grief, that sorrow, when people do such hurtful things against us? How? Because he says here, you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. He's not minimizing the grief part, but he's saying you joyfully took it. You joyfully were able to deal with it. How? Why? Because, he says in verse 34, this is why. How is it that we can be sustained when sorrow, injustice, and grief overcome us? He said in 34, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. A better possession and an abiding one. We know that we have that. And it takes faith to believe that you know that you have a better possession. It takes faith. We must believe the promises of God, the word of God about the future. We have to believe it. And without faith, as he says in chapter 11, verse 6, and without faith, it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. It takes faith to believe that what God has is better than what the world has. And without it, it's impossible to please him. This is what we have to know. Faith is not empty faith. Faith is not based on ignorance. Faith is not just based on feelings or anything like that. It's based on true knowledge. And what is this true knowledge? That we have given to us by the word of God, the promises of God say, we have a better possession and an abiding one, which is heaven, which is the heavenly Mount Zion, which is the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly city. This is what belongs to us. We are going to be with Christ forever and ever. And that, that's what we need to have set before us to give us hope, to help us with whatever problems we experience in this world. This is the way Abraham lived. This is the way all the saints of the Old Testament lived. Look, for example, at Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9. Hebrews eleven nine. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That's Abraham, along with his family, living for the world 
to come. Further, verse 13, Hebrews eleven thirteen. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Chapter 12. Look at chapter 12. Hebrews 12, 22. Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Chapter 13. Chapter 13 and verse 14. Hebrews 13, 14. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. This is what he means by the better possession and abiding one. The enduring possession is the possession of heaven. That belongs to us. We have God on our side. He is our judge. He is our vindicator. He is the one who is all-powerful and will take care of all of the injustices, all of the evils, persecutions that we face right now in this world. So that's how we can joyfully take it all. Say, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter what people do against us. None of it matters. It not, doesn't matter ultimately because we have God on our side and he's giving us a better and enduring possession. So if we know all this, what should we do? Verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Do not throw away your, your confidence. That's what his point is here. Don't discard it. Don't get rid of it. Don't throw it into the trash heap. Don't look at your past and what you know and what God has done for you and what changes have occurred in your life and what things you have professed to believe according to the gospel of Christ. Don't take all of that. Don't take all these promises of God that you know are true. You are convinced that they are true. The Bible is true. It is the living and abiding word of God. The word of Christ but from beginning to end is reliable, stable, secure, and these words should not be thrown away. The confidence we have in the gospel of Christ should not be treated as though it's a rotten thing. Don't treat it as though it's rotten and perishable and throw it into the trash heap. Don't do that. Don't throw it away. Because it, he says, which has a great reward. When we think about the past and when we think about the future, look to the future and the great reward. The great reward. Isn't this what God has provided for us? Isn't it what he has provided? Who wants to experience eternal punishment? Anybody in their right mind who understands the gospel does not want that. Who wants to have loss 
of his own soul. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his own soul? Nobody wants that in their right mind, in their right thinking. Instead, what we want is this great reward. Remember, God is the one who is a rewarder of those who seek him. It's a great reward to be with the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever, to be in the presence of God Almighty, who loved us enough to send his only begotten son to die on the cross for our sins, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This God who has provided for us immortality, this God who has provided for us eternal life, eternal bliss, happiness, joy, forever and ever. We have not even imagined it. We cannot even contemplate the depths of how great his love is toward us. This is the great reward that we have. Who would want to throw that away? Don't throw it away, he says. You have confidence that this is true, and there is a reward that awaits. It's a great reward, unmatched. No one else, no other religion, no other faith can offer that. All of the false religions of the world do not offer, do not present what the Bible presents. So, Let's, with this joy, with this enthusiasm, with this zeal, pursue the heavenly course. Let us not retreat like a soldier. Yes, some soldiers have temporary duty, but we are in a battle that lasts until our last breath or until the Lord returns. So we must be in this battle with victory after victory in our life until the very end. Let's not retreat, let's not give up, let's not throw anything away, let's proceed to the future. Because when that victory occurs, it will be well worth it. Christ will say, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.